the first thing I'll do is try and get used to the lights. And the second thing I'll do is to thank you all for coming out. I'm really appreciative that so many people have come here. Um, from my colleagues from work and people who I've, I've never seen, which is marvellous for people to come along. Uh, you may not think it's marvellous in an hour's time, but I think it's marvellous for you to be here. So let me thank you all for, for your support here. Um, I think I would like to just make special mention to, of some guests, namely my family. Um, my wife Karen's down here, and in a way, this, this talk should be Sam Porter and Karen, given the amount of input she has had and the amount of the hours and hours of discussions we've had of artworks and their meanings and their aesthetics and all the rest of it. But we've also got, um, we've got Kudzi here, uh, who's Karen's daughter, and John, who's Karen's brother, and then we've got my son, Ewan, who I think has probably come the farthest of anybody who's, who's very kindly flown down from Belfast to attend this. So, Garmin <laughs> Um So, thank you all. There are a couple of absences in the family that I had hoped was going to be there here, namely my mother and father. Um, but my father uh, managed to contract a chest infection while in holiday in Mallorca, which if you go on holiday to Mallorca when you're 92, it serves you right, really. <laughs> so um, he, he is unable to attend, uh, as, as is my mother. Um, but I just thought we are podcasting this, and I did want to use the opportunity as um, a recognition of them. Uh, and as it's a podcast, I will still do it, and maybe they'll get this far through the podcast before they stop. Um, and my debt to my father, who has always been um, a great debater with me, and without his sharp intellect, um, I would never have had the medium intellect that I have. I should tell you, he, he, he can be cruel. I've done this gig before when I was in Queens, and he came along to it many years ago, and I did the, the thing, and I went up to him afterwards and says, well, Dad, what did you think of my argument? And he says, I wasn't aware you made one. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it keeps you sharp. And my mother is where the art stuff comes from. Her, her inculcation in me of a love of literature and a love of art um, has, nev has never left me. So anyway, that's, that's those kind of bits. So to get on with it, for the most part, um, I'm going to do what I very rarely do, but I think given the, uh, given the situation I should do, which is read a text, but bits of it I won't. Um, so I'll start by not giving a kind of general introduction. I don't know if anybody's heard of, of the slow movement. Um, anybody heard of the slow movement? Slow cooking, slow whatever. Now there's one, uh, one aspect of it is slow academia. Now, those people who are not academics may find this an interesting concept. Um, and indeed, it's a concept that has been uh, slagged off. And I'm looking at one blog that came up. It says, I've never seen such a grotesque example of tenured faculty privilege. Poor darlings. Let's hope we don't see the slow nurse or slow doctor movements picking up amongst the professions. Well, I would love it if we did see a slow nurse and a slow doctor movement picking up and this is what this is about. The slow movement is not about doing everything slow at a snail's pace. The slow, mo slow movement is at appropriate points slowing down, thinking about what you're doing, having a proper um, concentration on your aims, on your movements, on your ethics. And the faster an occupation gets, and, and occupations like medicine and nursing are as fast as you can possibly get. I believe the more that is needed, the opportunity for healthcare and social care professions, just to have the time to step back, to, to consider, well, what am I doing and why am I doing it? So this is, in a way, um, a manifesto for slow, um, for slow, for slowness. <laughs> In fact, see, this, is, this was, I have to confess, this was purloined from my office. <laughs> and this is my tool for slow academia. So I try to make um, a point of about 20 minutes every day 
sitting down on this, taking a, a book, a, a social theory book or um, a healthcare book, and just spend 20 minutes reading it, thinking about it. Random books. So at the moment, I'm on the fascinating subject of Immanuel Kant. Not sure whether it'll do any good or not, but it's the notion of just thinking rather than doing, 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 doing. Anyway, if I don't start soon, um, it'll all be run out before, um, before I get to actually saying anything. I've got seven pictures here that I want to talk about, about five minutes each. Um, but what I don't want to do is overstay my welcome. And I do tend to um, get caught out by diversions. So if needs be, I will, I will knock one of the paintings off the, off the rota if, if time is running short. Um, so what, uh, what I want to do, but first of all, is have a drink of water. Um, but what I would like to do before I actually get whacked into these paintings and start thinking about them is just to sort of set the scene with the boring theoretical stuff. In what do, there are two big things here. There's caring and there's art. And what on earth do I mean by each of those? So I thought I'd just start with those definitions and then get, get laid into the, to the actual stuff. Okay. So basically... When we're talking about health or social care, and we're using the concept care, I, to, me, to my mind, there are two things. One thing is attitude. So what do I mean by that? An attitudinal component of caring is taking the stance, for me anyway, taking the stance to other human beings that accords them a humanity that it is, is as full as the humanity I accord myself. Okay. So while appreciating that, that, that um, people's needs will change from individual to individual and from culture to culture, caring entails an empathetic approach to those needs that is grounded in our common human condition. So it is our common humanity that gr should ground our attitudes. And the second component involves our interaction with them, doing things, and our actions uh, in which our actions are intended to improve or maintain their physical, psychological and or social condition. Or, in the case of a lot of the stuff I do, to ensure their comfort when none of those are possible. So, more succinctly, the golden rule. Do unto others that which you, uh, that which you would have them do unto you. is basically my creed for caring. Art. Um, approach that I've got tonight, so you're going to do tonight, is a bit different from what you normally think about aesthetics. So aesthetics is normally about um, concerned with beauty and the appreciation of beauty. Now, while there will be images up here that I hope will be pleasing to your eye, there are probably more that you're not going to be able to describe as beautiful. But it's not that sort of aesthetic judgment that I'm primarily interested in. For me, the beauty or ugliness of an artwork is of significance only insofar as it adds to the power and immediacy of the experience and understanding that that work invokes. So this alternative approach to aesthetics is grounded, um, it emphasises the experiential aspects of art and is grounded in the theories of the American pragmatist philosopher John Dewey. I always say Dewey, but it is, he's an American, so it's Dewey. Um, he argued that Aesthetics should be grounded in the experiences of everyday life rather than being faraway things hung on museum walls. For Dewey, the value of art does not lie primarily in its capacity to stimulate the senses, but in its capacity to use that stimulation to bring out the meanings attached to the senses that are thus evoked. Meanings that are drawn from the rich repositories of experience and circumstance. So the skill of the artist is to reflect upon and clarify the meanings embodied in experience, thereby, thereby contributing to the resolution of problems that experience throws up. And the experiences we're going to be talking about tonight are those in relation to caring. Now, um, one of the things I should note is that, that that sounds like the artist brings up this stuff extracts this stuff about people's experience, um, shows us what meanings are in that experience, and therefore we can be better people. But of course, this is a two-way thing. It's not a matter of the artist telling us. We can pull whatever meanings we like out of these things. 
And I have to confess that I've pulled whatever meanings I like out of these things, some of which I think cleave pretty close to what the artist might have thought, but some of which are just my own little tangents. Um, and everybody is free to do this. So as you look at this picture, you wander off in whatever direction you like in what you think the meanings are, what you think their significance are of it. Anyway, I've been um, rabbiting on far too long. And I wonder if this is working. And if it is, we'll go on to... No, it's not. Hang on a minute. It's technology. Yes, we're away. Now, I'm going to... Uh, the first painting uh, that I'm going to look at is... And, and I'll ask Edwin afterwards. It's Jan Steen, I think is how that's pronounced, um, who's a Dutch Golden Age painter. And the... the um, the painting is called The Dissolute Household, and it's to be found in London in Apsley House on, on Hyde Park Corner. Now, before I go on, I should say what I'm doing, what I'm doing is that seven or half a dozen, I'm moving through, I'm doing a couple of uh, stuff about um, how we get to be ill. And what I'm trying to do here is to, because I'm aware that there are a lot of social scientists in here and a lot of social workers. So this is not just about health, this is about health and social care. And what I'm trying to emphasise here in the meanings is about um, why, how society articulates with whether we're well or ill. So a couple of things about um, threats to health, then um, uh, a couple of images of, about actually being ill, um, then one about caring, and then at the end, a couple about dying and bereavement, because that's my speciality. So that's, that's the kind of... That's the, the evening's step up. So now, at this point, Edwin, where are you? Here. Here. Do me a favour. Will you shout out how on earth you pronounce that? <laughs> in Vilde C2. In Vilde C2, in luxury beware, which I should see there. Now, this actually was the title of another painting that Jan Steen did that was very similar to this one. So we will now move on to this image. So we're starting with actually quite a happy one in, 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 a, in a dissolute kind of way. Um, so this is Jan Steen at his most outrageous. Always bawdy in his moralising, in this cautionary tale about the dangers of overindulging in the good things of life, the bod has well and truly got the better of the moralizer. At the centre of the painting sit the mother and the father of the household, engaged in what might delicately be described as behaviour on becoming responsible parents. <laughs> Sporting a décolletage uh, that barely restrains her generous breasts, the mother holds a glass of wine in her right hand, while her left hand blatantly explores her husband's manhood. Pipe in hand, with his leg cocked insouciantly over her lap, he is evidently enjoying the attention she is giving him round, uh, as he glances round at us with a supremely salacious grin. That the mother and father are portraits of Stain and his wife, Margarita, uh, makes this candid display of erotic pleasure all the more shocking. One could only wonder what it did to marital relations when Margarita saw what Jan had her doing in the painting. Uh, just as shocking is the little imp who is picking, pickpocketing his grandmother as she lies slumped over the table in a drunken stupor. Uh, he's probably Stain's eldest son, Cornelius, watched in delight by his younger siblings. Meanwhile, in the background, the amorous musician is using his fiddle to point the maid towards the open curtain around the bed. The behaviour of the animals is little better than that of the humans. The dog in the foreground is feasting merrily on the unguarded joint of roast meat, while the monkey on the top of the bed um, is stopping the clock. Monkeys were used to symbolise the animal urges uh, of humanity, such as gluttony and lust. The actions of this one indicate that no one in the painting is going to get to the point where they think it's time to stop. Uh, the monkey's only a number of symbols of debauchery in the painting. If you just look at the foreground, you can see the playing cards and these quite enormous 
uh, aphrodisiacal um, oysters. So the so this is all well, great fun, I suppose. Uh, but the consequences of it are to be found in the wooden tub that hangs over the parents' heads like a sword of Damocles. Indeed, the contents of the, the tub actually contain a sword representing the inevitability of justice, along with a switch referring to punishment that will come about in its administration. There is also an empty purse presaging poverty, a crutch representing infirmity, and a wooden clapper which was used to warn people that a person was suffering from an infectious disease. This bucket load of the wages of sin is what gives the painting its moral justification, presenting it as a cautionary tale about the dangers of the activities it so graphically displays. From this perspective, the dissolute behaviour of the members of this household is displayed for the purposes of warning viewers uh, that these are the sort of things they should avoid doing if they don't wish to end up diseased and impoverished. However, there's more than a pinch of disingenuous to Stein's approach. For one thing, everybody involved, as I've just said, well, everybody involved who's conscious, don't know if the granny's either enjoying it or not enjoying it, uh, seems to be having such a great time that it's difficult not to see the painting as a backhanded celebration of the activities. Moreover, this is a really biographical painting. Stein didn't just stick these faces in it was all, he was also painting the lifestyle that he was infamous for. So infamous that a Jan Steen household became a Netherlands expression to describe an unruly home. And he was actually just as famous for his bohemian antics as he was for his paintings during his lifetime. So, however, while he reveled in his dissolution, he was aware of the costs and made us aware of it too. Now... Do you remember I said I was going to go off on, on, uh, on tangents? Well, here we go. Can't even get through the first painting without going off on a tangent on the meaning it has for me. Now, what it has, the meaning it had for me, and I was looking at it and I was thinking, so, right, this, this is all very salacious and all very shocking. In some ways it is. But in other ways, it's actually quite um, remarkably on, uh, remarkably conservative, really. And I'm thinking about the sin of gluttony. So what are the gustatory temptations that we are presented with? Well, no, we're not doing that. We're presented with unprocessed meat, wholemeal bread, cheese, shellfish, and that terrible, terrible stuff there, fruit. <laughs> so this to us would look like the epitome of healthy eating. So what's happened? Well, and how can we explain the difference? And this is what he thought was, was going mad on, on the gluttony stakes. Well, what's happened is, um, and here we get to the social science, what's happened is late modern capitalism. For a year, for centuries and centuries, the supply chain for food was very simple, and very short. Farm, butchers, table. Fishermen, fishmongers table but over the last 50 years there's been a revolution in food production and supply a revolution that has made that supply chain hugely complex and hugely more profitable and the reason why it's hugely more profitable is that it combines overselling with what is termed value addition now by value addition I mean purely money value addition there is absolutely no nutritional value addition to this process whatsoever because it involves largely the uh, addition of simple carbohydrates and synthetic agents to, en to enhance or enhance flavour, that's their term. Intensify flavour would be a, a less thing and to prevent decomposition. Now, as a result of this, we all consume far greater amounts of free sugars, fats and chemicals than Jan Steen could ever imagine in his most wild um, fantasies of deprivation. Um, and the cost of that we all know in terms of uh, type 2 diabetes, chronic obesity and the sequelae that, that come from them. So that's one thing of my thing. The other thing is that I thought was just as Steen knew the dangers of the habits, 
we know that he's not never going to give them up. Similarly, the health promotion policies that we have at the moment that rely on individual strategies, so providing um, informed choice or using nudge economics, uh, haven't been successful in turning the tide of ever-increasing consumptions of nutritional rubbish. And this is because the problem is not primarily an individual, but systemic. This in turn suggests that the solution requires fundamental restructuring of the agri-food industries to ensure they don't undermine public health in the pursuit of profit. A task, of course, easier said than done, given the power of the global reaching oligopolies uh, that control our food supply. So why all this? Why am I saying this? What's the meaning here behind it? The meaning to me in this is that, and, and one of the things that, that, that sometimes irritates me about the Faculty of Health and Social Sciences is when it's referred to as the Faculty of Health. My argument is that health cannot do without social science. Health largely um, looks at proximate causes, near causes. What's the bug that causes that or whatever? Social science looks at distal causes, which are often more fundamental. So why is it? We know, we know that if you eat a load of, a load of uh, nutritional crap, you'll get fatter and you may get diseased. But why do so many of us do it? And that's the question that social science is involved in. And that's why I believe that it's essential, even if we're talking solely about the pursuit of health, that we need social science. So that's that one done. I, I, we're only going to get about three done at this rate. But anyway, <laughs> we'll get as many done as we can. The next one, and I want to, this is by Edvard Munch, the guy who did the scream. And as you will see, he, he kind of riffed on that idea quite a lot. And this is another one that's a, a variation on the theme. I also should say that I had, and I'll not attempt to, to, pronounce, to pronounce it as Edwin did, but I've got a kind of saying or a bit of poetry in each of them to link text with image. And this one is um, a, a line of a poem by William Wordsworth. The world is too much with us, late and soon. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon. And here is the result of the sordid boon. Okay. We have before us a parade of ghosts. Well-dressed, prim, and tidy ghosts, but ghosts nonetheless. They may earn good money, they may buy good things, but what good has it done them? Munch has shown us the nightmare that lurks behind the lives of all who enjoy the easy comforts of middle-class existence. Tell you, it, it, this isn't the most miserable either. Uh, he is saying that while modernity may have freed us from want and hunger, it has also enslaved us in the machine that both creates and feeds our desires. Consumption, that central ritual of modern life, is a false god, providing only superficial sustenance to the human soul. So the scene we see before us is the main street uh, in Oslo, which remains recognisable to this day. The building in the back there is the Stortengort, the Norwegian uh, parliament, and... Um, the shops down here remain the shishi shops and cafes that they ever were. However, it's not the scenery that uh, really gets our attention, but the faces, the gaunt, hollow faces that stare out of us in vacant despair. Of the great mass of people, the expressions of only three are painted in any detail. They make a haunting trio that more, look more like skeletons than living people. The anguish on the face of the man is particularly poignant. His fancy top hat and high-coloured fur coat may keep out the cool air of the Scandinavian evening, but they can do nothing to protect him from the chill of existential angst. His long, pale face with its drawn cheeks and sunken eyes that stare out from beneath raised eyebrows projects a strange mixture of catatonia and anxiety. It is, if the, is it as if the fears that beset him have drained him of all vitality. So what's going on here? Well, by contrasting the material wealth of his subjects with their spiritual poverty, Munch is alluding to the problems of meaning that modernity has brought in its wake. 
The waning of religion is the foundation for people's worldviews in late 19th century Scandinavia and its consequent attenuation as a guide for emotional and intellectual integrity is a significant ingredient in Munch's narrative throughout his paintings. Munch was the son of a devout Puritan who filled his children with the dread of hellfire and damnation. Although he abandoned his father's faith, Munch was acutely aware of the profound consequences that derived from rejection of the certainties of Christianity. He saw with merciless clarity the fraud behind the devil's bargain of modern wealth and materialism. Even when material wealth is attained, its satisfactions are fleeting. Instead of satiating us, they merely goad us on to want more. But because Monk couldn't turn back to the old beliefs, his insights into the pitfalls of modernity were of little comfort to him. He portrays himself here with his back to the viewer, walking down the road, lonely, against the flow of the tide of humanity, a dark and isolated figure, able to worship neither God nor mammon. But in a way, all the characters in the painting are isolated. Despite being crowded together, they pay no attention to each other. They are testament to the anomic loneliness that is generated by modern city life. The loosening of the bonds of support of community by urban anonymity has laid waste to the psychological integrity of these detached and desolate souls. This is a very harsh portrayal of modern angst, but it shows us that while we may be... Uh, while it may be experienced in an intensely personal way, mental trauma is very rarely a purely individual phenomenon. And that's the meaning coming out here. We, we experience mental trauma as an individual, but it is actually very rarely an individual thing. The social and cultural context within which people live has a profound effect upon their psychological well-being. So while... What I take from this is the, 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 the belief that while helping people to adapt and cope with the stresses that they are faced with is at the core of health and social care, that does not relieve professionals of the obligations to address those aspects of social life and organisation that militate against mental health. And once again, uh, one of the great things I, I, I love about working in the faculty is the work that is going on that accepts those um, accepts those fundamental tenets. So within the, the mental health nursing group, we've got Steve Trenoweth and his colleagues uh, who are adamant that we should take a public health approach to, to uh, mental health. And then again, closer to home, um, we have... Um, and elsewhere, we have within our social work teams, we have a really brilliant emphasis on critical social work, on not just training our students to be uh, the, the appliers of elastoplast, but training our students to have an understanding of where the social and cultural causation of the problems that their clients are dealing with are coming from, and thereby... Um, enabling them to better engage with those rather than simply individualizing everything. So those are great things that are going on um, in the faculty. This is not really what I should be bumming off about my own stuff, but that's the kind of just <laughs> I'll get to it eventually. <laughs> um, OK, so that's that one. Those are the, the sort of threats to health. Um, what I want to move on to now are illnesses, and specifically, the first um, illness that I want to talk about specifically is dementia. And I want to use this by uh, um, uh, using a, a, a painting by the abstract expressionist Robert Motherwell called In Plato's Cave Number One. Okay. And here we have a poem from, where, who do, oh, T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot, of course, The Hollow Man. I told you it was going to get more miserable. Between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act, falls the shadow. You can't get much more doom-laden poetry than that, can you? It's brilliant. So, the painting. 
This is Plato's cave. How, do we, how does perception relate to reality? What if, we, what if what we think of as real is nothing more than a pale and unreliable reflection? What if the closest we can get to the things in themselves are flickering, mutating simulcra that dance across the screens of our shackled minds? For Plato, this was the unwitting fate of most of humanity. He illustrated the limitations of perception using the allegory of prisoners chained in a cave who, having only seen the projected shadows of objects illuminated behind them, mistook those shadows for real things. Plato believed that just as the prisoners thought that the shimmering shapes on the cave wall were all that there was, most people wrongly assume that their limited and distorted sense perceptions um, encompass the entire of reality. This might seem a tad pessimistic, but at least Plato believed that genuine reality could be found by escaping from the cave of sense perception out into the pure light of ideal forms. Unfortunately, few now believe in this escape route. So to the painting. With his monumental monochrome of gloom, Motherwell pushes Plato's principle of uncertainty to its limits. As we stare into the depths of his cave, not only are we in danger of mistaking the shadows for reality, we are also left in a state of confusion about the shadows themselves. Where are they? What are they? What do they signify? He fuels these ambiguities with a bewildering blend of abstraction, symbolism and figuration. In a tour de force of abstract expression, the gloomy swathes of black and grey that sweep across this vast canvas, which is about the size, that's about its real size, um, evoke an unsettling sombreness and uncertainty in the viewer. Yet closer inspection of the painting, if you were able to, uh, when you get up close to it, reveals anything but abstraction. Motherwell's hyper-realistic rendering of the wall's surface makes one almost want to reach out and touch the cold, hard stone. But of course, this is not a wall. This is a painting, as Magritte might have said. Um, and it's just an illusion conjured up by the ledger domain of the artist. To add further confusion, Motherwell plays paradolic games with us. Paradolic games, that's a good word. It's what you do when you look into the fire or in clouds and see faces. So I see faces in there. Uh, well, or do I? I'm not sure. I think there might be a face there, but is that just random shapes? Is it not random shapes? We don't know. Just as we, do, we aren't quite sure if our perceptual faculties really have a grasp of the world around us. Motherwell caps this eclectic assault on the certainty of her senses by introducing esoteric symbolism into the mix. An incongruous rectilinear form dominates the middle of the painting, a truncated rectangle gouged into the wall. This was the shape he used repeatedly in what he called his open series of paintings. As the name suggests, it normally symbolises openness and promise, a window onto the possibilities that um, lie beyond the confines of the here and now. But this window is incomplete and opaque, and from beneath its sill oozes something very ominous. The promise of light and clarity beyond the cave has come to nothing. But it's possible to over-egg the platonic pudding. The complex relationship between human consciousness and that of which it is conscious may indeed be un um, existentially unsettling, but the burden of it is leavened by the realisation that the mental ability to gain and use empirical knowledge is not just a possibility, but a prerequisite for human existence. It is the shadow that lies between the idea and the reality, not a stone wall. While different perspectives on reality coexist and sometimes clash, most of the time, people's perceptions are sufficiently attuned to their environment to enable them to engage effectively with other people and things. However, 
there are those who over time find themselves less and less able to engage effectively with the world. As the shadows become more profound and the cave darker, it becomes ever easier to lose things, words, places, memories, meanings, and even oneself. And with those losses can come anxiety, anger, and despair. Uh, make no beef about it. There are a few more challenging sets of symptoms than dementia. It is a hard road to travel, hard for the person with the disease who, uh, that the disease has wrought these symptoms upon, and hard for those who love them. One of the most difficult aspects of dementia is behavioural change and the frustrations that this can cause for all concerned. Unfortunately, the response of others to these frustrations can sometimes involve neglect and even cruelty. More alarming still, sometimes those with cruel or neglectful others are professionals with a duty to care. Now, it's easy to take the moral high ground by condemning abuse, but it's worth thinking, and here we get around to my little meaning trajectory or tangent, it's worth thinking about the common culture in which that happens. A culture that regards those with dementia as somehow lesser, as no longer fully human. Yet we all reside in Plato's cave, struggling with fallible memory, perception and cognition. There's no denying that dementia throws up problems of daunting magnitude, but they remain human problems. People with dementia share the universal predicament of trying to connect the idea with reality and the motion with the act. While those connections become progressively more uh, difficult to maintain, to assume that the diagnosis of dementia equates with the cessation of humanity is not just demeaning, it is also profoundly disabling. And once again, one of the great things about working in this faculty is that there are people working on the basis of these very insights. People in the Aging and Dementia Research Centre whose entire focus is on person-centred care. Look to the person. There is a person there to look to. There's lots of pages here, but it's very big writing because I'm very blind. <laughs> you'll, be, you'll be glad to know. So um, what I want to move on to now is disability and a painting by um, the Mexican uh, mid-20th century painter, Frida Kahlo. And the quotation's actually from her. It actually gets a little more cheery when we get to death and bereavement, so don't worry. Uh, a little while ago, I was a child who went around in a world of colours. Now I live in a painful planet, transparent as ice. But it is as if I had learned everything at once in seconds. I became old in instants, and everything today is bland and lucid. I know that nothing lies behind. If there were something, I would see it. Her spine shattered, but posture erect. Her wound gruesome, but breasts beautiful. Her tears flowing, but eyes unflinching. Her pain excruciating, but expression composed. In this myriad of visual contradictions lies the indefatigable power of Frida Kahlo's painting. We are looking at the dignified forbearance of that which is utterly unbearable. The woman in the picture is Kahlo herself. Painted shortly after one of over 30 surgical procedures carried out on her as a result of... Uh, injuries she sustained in a vehicular accident when she was 18. The severe trauma that she suffered uh, in this awful accident resulted in a huge list of, of injuries. Fractures to her spine, pelvis, leg, and her right foot was crushed. She was no longer able to have children. There was just a, a horrendous list of injuries. Neither her spine nor her right foot healed properly. In terms of the former, in addition to numerous attempts at restorative surgery, she was condemned to wear various forms of supportive cor corset throughout her life. And as for her right foot, it was eventually amputated. Disability had been part of Callow's life um, 
since she contracted polio at the age of six. However, after the severe and irrevocable insult to her physical integrity that resulted from the crash, it became central to her self-image and as a consequence to her very personalised art. The broken column is the most dramatic representation of her physical disintegration. Her thorax and abdomen have been ripped open. The straps of the corset only just managing to hold her torn body together. Inside the chasm of her wound teeters a crumbling ionic column, that grand symbol of classical elegance and strength, having been reduced to an edifice so weak that it can hardly support itself, never mind the rest of her body. The physical pain produced by all this damage is represented symbolically by the nails driven into her face, torso, arms and leg. That these inflictions are deeply felt is indicated by the streams of tears flowing down her cheeks. The symbolism of the nails recalls Christian iconography of martyrdom, both in terms of the arrows that pierced St. Sebastian and the nails that pinned Christ to the cross. The association with Christ's suffering is further emphasised by the winding cloth that is wrapped loosely around her waist. In the background, her slashed flesh is echoed by the deep furrows of an empty landscape. The em that emptiness tells of loneliness, but it is more than that. As our epigraph described, the accident brought her to an existential wilderness, a place where she was able to see through the hopes and foibles that sustain most of us through our mundane lives. But she, maybe she wasn't entirely convinced by the blandness of life. If we look at the distance, we can see blue skies and cool seas beyond the barren landscape. But they're an awful long way away. For all the symbol of martyrdom and existential angst, we don't get the impression that Mal, uh, Callow is indulging in self-pity. Quite the opposite. There's a steely strength to the painting that imbues its subject with an aura of heroism. She may be torn apart and consumed with pain, but she's still standing tall, looking at us straight in the face with grim determination. Nor is it just a matter of defiance. Despite the all the disfigurements that injuries and surgeries have inflicted upon her, she still has the confidence of her sensual appeal, a confidence that is expressed in the display of her naked breasts. Such sassiness in these circumstances is pretty damned impressive. This candid uh, portrayal of the experience of pain and disability can teach us many lessons. I want to touch on just one point. The fact that Callow had the capacity to produce such a painting. Initially, she was training as a doctor. Uh, and she claimed it was, it was the boredom of being confined to bed with her injuries that made her take up painting. But there was more to it than that. She discovered that it gave her the perfect vehicle to express herself and to articulate her acute introspective insight. It's a cruel irony that far from preventing her from being productive, her injuries and disability were actually the catalyst that enabled her to produce the masterpieces that she did. We might wonder how many others with disabilities have similar potentialities that they are never given a chance to fulfill. And we might query how often they're actually encouraged or supported to take such directions. <coughs> Right, where are we? I need to start um, cutting these down, I think. Um, what I think I will go to, we've got three left. Much as I, much as I am loath to, I'm going to slash poor Ken Curry, but I'll let you have a look at it. It's a fantastic painting of uh, modern painting, 2002, of three oncologists. And it's really good. But basically, it looks really gloomy. But what the, what the whole point of it is, is, that the, is the quote from, I think it's from this guy. I think that's David Lane. The quote from him. Uh, People see cancer as a kind of darkness. And our job is to go in there and retrieve people from the darkness. And that's them going in.
to retrieve people behind the curtain from the darkness and to bring them out from their cancer. Another cheery one. But we'll move, we'll move on now to the two. One about, uh, one about uh, uh, the dying process and one about bereavement. So the first one is by the Finnish artist Akseli Galankalala and it's called Lemminkainen's Mother. And our poem here comes from the, uh, the book of the, the, the epic tale from which this painting is, is, is part of, the Kalevala. Wake, arise from out of thy slumber, from the worst of low conditions, from thy state of dire misfortune. And here we have it. This painting is a disconcerting combination of simplicity and mystery. It's uncluttered stylization, reinforced by the smooth surfaces that result from Galancala's use of tempera paints, provides an initial impression of straightforward transparency. Yet the more we look at the strange images it contains, the more the mist of otherworldliness seeps into our consciousness. And otherworldly it certainly is. We are looking at the picture of death about to be defeated by hope and love. The pale outstretched body of Lemminkainen lies on the banks of a dark river with his mother kneeling over him. She looks up with sad and but determined gaze at a bee which glides down uh, towards them ahead of stylized sun rays. There's the bee there. Her face is drawn, her eyes are sunken, but her jaw is firmly set. There's something about the Christian Pieta about Lemminkainen's mother's stance, recalling Michelangelo's statue of Mary holding her dead son. Indeed, the core theme of the painting can be interpreted as a Nordic version of the crucifixion and resurrection story. It depicts an, ep an episode from the Finnish epic, The Kalevala, telling the story of Lemminkainen, who was a womanizing warrior who sought the daughter of Luhi, mistress of the Northland. Luhi would only consent if he succeeded in performing certain tasks. One of these was to shoot the swan of the Tuanala, the, the river of death. That is, that is the river of death behind there. This was a tall order in that the swan embodied the secret of life and death. Killing it would release that secret, but it was not to be. Death in the form of a blind herdsman, got the better of Lemminkainen by pulling a poisonous snake from the tunnela and hurling it at him, making sure of the job by chopping him into pieces and dumping his body parts into the dark waters. Lemminkainen's mother came searching for him and eventually recovered his dismembered remains from the riverbed and proceeded to sew the sinews, bones and flesh together. While she managed to restore him anatomically, she couldn't bring him back to life. She enlisted the help of a bee, which flew up to the heavens and returned with the ointment of the gods. The painting captures the moment of the bee's return. And with it, in the hope of sun rays that, that, excuse me, the hope of sun rays that penetrate the gloom of the tunnela. That hope is justified when his mother applies the ointment and Lemminkainen reawakens to life. So the central theme of the painting is motherly love and the hope that such love can bring. It hints that while we may not be able to know the mysteries of life and death, after all the swan still floats in the black waters undisturbed, we can hope to hold back death through life-affirming love. This is not an unfamiliar experience to those with loved ones facing death. It speaks to the desperate willing of survival and recovery, even in the face of all evidence to the contrary, to the refusal to give up hope when all practical attempts to save life seem to have failed. So how should healthcare professionals respond to such hope? On the one hand, who are we to demur? Look into the face of Lemminkainen's mother, and consider if you would want to take issue with her quiet determination. Many of us 
will have seen examples of very ill people's health improving unexpectedly and sometimes dramatically. Even where loving hope is, uh, is proved futile by outcome, to dash those hopes prior to them being extinguished by mortality seems cruel in that it denies the distraught their chosen method of dealing with their crisis. There is, however, another way of looking at this. Instead of extolling the merits of hope, it points to the comforts of resignation, of facing up to the inevitable and preparing for it peacefully. Florence Nightingale, who I'm now going to quote, uh, was, uh, um, was starkly opposed to the uh, expression of false hope. And here she's, she's great. She, people think Florence Nightingale's well worth reading. She's a very opinionated woman, as you will find out. I really believe there is scarcely a greater worry which invalids have to endure than the incurable hope of their friends. <laughs> Attempting to cheer the sick by making light of their danger and by exaggerating the probabilities of recovery. The fact is that the patient isn't cheered by these well-meaning, most tiresome friends. On the contrary, he is depressed and wearied. So, notwithstanding the characteristic certainty of Ms Nightingale's pronouncement, the dilemma between truth and hope remains a troublesome issue for those healthcare professionals involved in people who are dying. While the increasing preference to be honest is a positive development, we should also remember that economy with the truth may be the patient's preferred option. It is, but it is important to remember that the only good reason for lack of frankness is the welfare of those who are being cared for. Being a pretext for avoiding a difficult conversation does not count as adequate justification. And the reason why I've, I've included this, that this is one of my bugbears and this is one of the things I've written on and tried to move things on, is how do we get healthcare professionals to the state where they are both confident and competent of having these conversations? That they're able to know when they're appropriate and they're able to know what's said, but, but almost more than anything is, how do we get them to actually have the guts to have those conversations? And it's very, very, it's, those conversations are uncomfortable and it's a human impulse to avoid them. But that's, my, in my view anyway, unless the patient wants them to be avoided, we have a responsibility to be honest with them. Now, have I time for one more or have I outstayed my welcome? The last one, I promise. Nicholas Poussin, The Shepherds of Arcadia, or Et in Arcadia Ego. I love, I don't know why I love Poussin, but I absolutely adore Poussin. Anyway, this one's based on a, Virgil, a, ver, a poem by Virgil, and here's a quotation of it, and it's about a dead shepherd. Build him a mound and carve an epitaph on top. Countryman, Daphnis is my name. The very stars have heard my fame. Here in the woods I lived and lie. My flock was lovely, lovelier I. Fantastic. So here we have it. Um, so like many of Poussin's paintings, the meaning of this one is far from obvious. In the middle of a pastoral setting, three shepherds and a regal-looking, perhaps divine female character, all dressed in classical clothing, gather around the plain but monumental tomb on which is carved the Latin inscription... What, what's happened? We've got... How did I do that? Stay. Put that over there. So there, there is... You won't be able to see it, but it's carved there where he's pointing. At In Arcadia Ego. Literally translated, and In Arcadia I. The scene is calm and gentle. Despite being gathered around a grave, the members of this group do not give the impression of being overly distressed. So who are these shepherds? What are they up to? And why are they up to it? The key to understanding the painting lies in the tomb's inscription. Arcadia, as depicted by the Roman poet Virgil and rediscovered by Renaissance scholars, was an earthly paradise, a rural idyll where Pan played his pipes and all was harmonious. 
Yet for all their divine euphonies, the shepherds in Arc of Arcadia were mortal. And it was this tension that fascinated artists. The phrase that in Arcadia ego um, first appeared around 1620 in a painting by Guercino, where it was cut into a crumbling plinth on which lay a death's head skull confronting a couple of shocked shepherds. Given such a context, its meaning was clear. Even in Arcadia, I, death, exist. The purpose of the painting too was to act as a memento mori, a reminder that even in the best of all possible worlds, everybody dies eventually. And an admonition, as a consequence, to attend to that inevitability by guarding against the fleeting attractions of the flesh. So we're back round circle, back to Jonstein. About a decade after Guercino's painting, Poussin painted his first version of the scene. Uh, and while this was more formal and classical in style than Guercino's, the key ingredients, including the inscription, the skull, and the alarm shepherds are repeated, thus reiterating, reiterating the message that bids the viewer remember their end is nigh. But another decade on, with the second version that we see here, things have changed radically. Not only has the skull disappeared, but the attitude of the shepherds is totally different. The young man on the left is so relaxed that he's draped his arm nonchalantly over the monument. That said, he is concentrating with sombre respect on the efforts of his kneeling compatriot, who, consumed by curiosity, traces out the inscription as if trying to decode its true meaning. The closest response to that of the previous shepherds is is seen in the man on the right who points to the tomb with an expression of concern. However, he's been affectionately reassured by the mysterious woman who places her hand protectively on his shoulder. So what we're seeing here is a move away from the dark medieval fears towards a more classical, humanist and personalised approach to death. The tomb in Virgil's, Virgil's eclogue is raised by Arcadians in elegiac praise for the dead shepherd, Daphnis. While their grief of his loss is great, they express, they express that grief by lauding his actions in life. And another line from the poem is, Daphnis, you alone shed grace on all about you. Thus for Virgil, the object of attention is the person who has died rather than death itself. Reflecting this, Poussin's shepherds do not display distress at their own mortality, but meditate on the idea of mortality through contemplation of the finished life of another who once breathed the same air they breathe. In this context, it's in Arcadia ego might be read as I too lived in Arcadia. Everything about the painting points to Poussin's admiration for the classical approach to life and death. The beautiful harmonious colouring and the balance of the painting, the considered poses and the sublime composure of the characters are all deliberately constructed as visual demonstrations of their self-contained psychology. Their emotional response to death is not terror, but melancholy. The sorrow that they feel, rather than being the result of an elemental survival instinct, comes from conscious remembrance of another's life. While the subject of death remains saddening to them, that sadness is assuaged by the mutual comfort they give each other and the calm beauty of their surroundings. This complex blend of sorrow, comfort and memory is, to me at least, hauntingly emotive. The message that the painting imparts is as complex as the emotions it engenders. It is a reminder that because there is no escaping death's clutches, it makes sense to accept mortality. Poussin seems to be saying that dignity can be salvaged from death if one refuses to give in to the horror of that which cannot be changed and instead celebrates the life one has. Even when life ends, those left behind can honour the dead and comfort themselves through fond remembrance. And to bring this through to modern um, palliative care, one of the things 
that another concern of mine is the, the lack of, not entirely lack of concentration, but lack of concerted concentration on the well-being of bereaved relatives who are often left um, sort of high and dry once the healthcare episode is over, they're left. But I think one of the things that I've found um, that people have found very helpful and, and have found helpful myself is when one encourages a bereaved relative to try to concentrate on the good times they had with the departed rather than dwelling on the pain and misery of their departure, we provide them with just that opportunity to view death in this way that Poussin was trying to get us to view it. At that point, I'm sure I have gone way beyond my brief despite cutting things, so I will now shut up. Thank you. Thank you.